0: What is up, Mets fans? Here we are back again for another episode of the Mets Stuff Podcast, episode number 44, talking about the San Francisco Giants series, which is just it's the same thing we've been saying for the last few weeks. It's just not good baseball. The Mets are not in a good space right now, I guess is what I would say. They're playing bad. They've pitched a little bad in this series, and game one wasn't very strong. But the offense still has yet to show up. It has been the problem all year long, and it continues to be the problem as we get deeper into the season. Games are starting to run out here. We are running out of time to make a run at the National League East, because that's simply the only way we're going to be able to make the playoffs, is by maybe winning this division, and we are running out of time. So of course, me and James going to talk about every single game in this series, Follow me on Twitter, at DraftNeckMark. Follow James on Twitter, at JeterHadNoRange. Make sure you guys are following the podcast. We just did a giveaway of this Marcus Stroman card, so shout out to, I believe it was Sal who won this card. We'll be doing some more giveaway stuff over on our social media. Follow us, at MetsUp on Twitter and Instagram, as well as subscribe to the YouTube channel if you want a video version of this. The video versions, by the way, have been killing it, guys. Thank you so much for the support on YouTube. It's really, uh, it's, it's surprising how well it's doing over there, but... Appreciate that. Mets Up podcast, you can find us there. And if you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, literally anywhere where you can listen to them, you will be able to find us. James, how are we feeling after this Giants series? Awful. Yeah. Terrible. Not great. It embarrassed a little bit. Hopeless, I think, is the word I'm going to use again. It's kind of been the theme of these last few weeks is
1: just hopeless. I almost feel bad that I, I gave a pessimistic view of these 13-game stretch, and I thought the Mets could go 4-9. and nine. And boy, was I incorrect, because no. <laughs> four wins is simply unattainable against these two teams. Yeah, four
0: wins would have been really nice. We would have taken Great. four wins
1: at this point. We'd be like, we win four games? Oh my god, that's it's incredible. But no, it's not the case. Nope, not the case. And it all got started off really just horrifically, awfully in game one. This was, again, another moment, as I've been saying this year, where it felt like performance art where social media was ablaze all day with the return of Francisco Lindor playing his first Major League Baseball game ever with his best friend Javi Baez, the double play tandem up the middle, flash, fury, charisma, enthusiasm, and whop, top of the first inning, Brandon Belt home run. I mean,
0: we should have known that before. I don't think the news was out before the game, but Brandon Belt's grandmother died earlier that day, and it feels like any time a family member dies in an athlete's family, they just play out of their mind. And Brandon Bell had, like, superhuman strength this game. He had two home runs, and both of them were
1: crushed. Yeah, he hit the one in the first. Yaz hit a two-run in the second. Lamont Wade, who is now high up on the list of Mets killers, I will say. Hit another two-run in the fourth. Belt hit it again. And then Brandon Crawford, another RBI single, in that fourth inning to chase Tyler McGill in far and away the worst start of his professional career. Yeah,
0: 1,000%. 11 hits, seven earned runs in three and two-thirds innings. I don't think anyone had that coming, as much as he's been due, we've been saying it, he's due to get hit at some point, like, and he has been a little bit, but he's, he's really settled in when he has gotten into that, like, adversity, this time he just did not have it, he was not, he didn't even have command, it felt like.
1: No, you can't, like, grit your teeth and bear down when you're just throwing 60% fastballs down the middle, because he was really just throwing fastballs down the middle of this game, and like you said... Over and over again, we've warned Mets fans that there was going to be some regression coming for Tyler McGill, just how we warned Mets fans back in April, May, and June, there was going to be a regression coming for Taiwan Walker. You're just really hard to consistently succeed in the major leagues when you're throwing 60% fastballs. Unless you're playing the Mets. Unless you're playing the Mets, yeah. Then yeah, you yeah. could throw 100% fastballs like Jake McGee, and no one, no one can actually hit you. But the real issue that plagued Tyler McGill this game, like you just said, was his command. He has been pretty good at locating and keeping hitters off balance by using the shadow of the zone so far this season. But Jesus Christ, that didn't happen. He threw 19 fastballs in the heart of the plate this game. 19.
0: Yeah, and for, again, any team that's not the New York Mets, 19 down the middle is you're And you're like, oh my God, thank you so much for putting it on a tape.
1: Especially the team that has the most home runs in baseball. And three of those four home runs that the Giants hit were on fastballs in the heart of the zone. And the only one that wasn't was on the slider. In the heart of the zone. So, Tyler McGill just, like, simply didn't have it. And it's just, he was never going to live like this forever. It wasn't going to happen. And we should be pretty grateful that we've gotten so much out of him, like, at this elite level. And not saying this is, like, the end of Tyler McGill. Like, he's going to be awful now next time out. I expect him to rebound very nicely against the Nationals and Marlins. But it felt like it was coming, and the floodgates just opened. He, unfortunately, also made his second
0: start in a row against the Giants, which, you know... Fuck the MLB scheduling again. Unbelievable Mm -hmm. that we have to deal with this. And when you're going up against one of the smarter teams in baseball right now who has gotten production out of guys like we just mentioned, Lamont Wade, Darren Ruff, we'll throw the names out there. They're getting production out of these guys. You're not going to be able to throw 60% fastballs to begin with and be successful, let alone no command down the middle of the plate, and the Giants just made him pay. He got smacked around. It sucks because there really was some energy around the Mets, back home, Mm -hmm.
1: Lindor, Javi, everything. And it just got sucked out of the stadium immediately. Especially just because, once again, even as Tyler McGill is giving up nukes left and right, the offense was listless. There was no life whatsoever. We couldn't even compete to score a run. We weren't even close to scoring a run against the ace that everyone knows is Sammy Long. Yeah, we're shaking our boots. Everyone knows the grown man who goes by Sammy. That's a <laughs> It's a real, that's a real fierce individual. Fucking Sammy.
0: The most exciting thing about our offense this game was that Lindor almost hit two home runs. One of them went yeah. to the warning track. He just like got under it, but it was a good swing. And then the second one was a foul ball by about 10 feet, which mm-hmm. also got me thinking, the Mets have to have hit the most foul ball home runs in all of baseball this year. I mean, McNeil has like five or six. Alonzo has like 10. Lindor has a few. I've never seen a team hit foul ball home runs like the Mets just maybe, can we make the lines
1: a little bit wider to get some extra runs over here? I don't know we need to score runs. We need something. There's actually a prominent member of Analytics Twitter, Andrew Perpetua, who his solution to fixing baseball is to extend the foul lines and make the field wider so there could be more balls in play and more action on the base pass, which is kind of funny that you said that. but. I tweeted this on Monday night because it really does feel like the Mets have the most good foul balls in baseball. And it's a shame there's no data on this because I would love to drop the listeners at home a stat about the Mets' average exit velocity in foul balls and the Mets' distance on foul balls because <laughs> from simply the eye test alone, we annihilate the ball foul on a consistent basis. And a lot of that does come from the fact that Sammy Long has like actually a really nice curveball. The shit I gave him, the curveball's good. Like, that thing drops like a rock. It's really slow, but that sometimes kind of plays, especially when your fastball's not fast, like Sammy Long's. And we were just out in front of everything. It's like, oh, you guys can't adjust. Like, How many innings do you have to see of this before you're like, wait a second, it's coming in slowly? Well, again,
0: I mean, this is the team that had trouble against Chase Anderson earlier in the year. Matt Moore, we should have known then that we were in trouble when we couldn't hit those guys. I mean, we, we joked about it, but we thought they were going to figure it out. That should have been our biggest warning sign. Like, oh, wait, there's something fundamentally wrong if we're not hitting these guys the second time
1: we're seeing them. No, Sammy Long guy to the lineup a third time. Yeah. We still couldn't get him. Some people were... Um, like kind Some of people, obs- there was a lot of bad takes. I know where you're going with this. Well, there's two takes I'm going with. The first one I'm going to go with, there was this instance in the second inning where Javi was on first after a walk, a rare Javi Baez walk. It's actually good at bat. Yeah, it wasn't good at bat. Javi seems to be doing the things that all these other Mets are doing, but for him it helps, and for everyone else it hurts. <laughs> just taking too many pitches, it's amazing. And Conforla was up in a 3-2 count, and people, namely Evan Roberts, which he's just Mongo- mongoloid central, he's the king <laughs> of the mongoloids basically, he was like harping on the fact that he wished the Mets would hit and run to play aggressive baseball. It's like, have you watched Michael Conforto play this season? Like he's probably going to strike out. Why? We're down one nothing? It's not like a reason to panic. Michael Conforto going well. Yes, he's a perfect candidate for hit and run because he puts the ball in play a lot. He uses the opposite field. Fantastic. But I don't understand how you could hope to like get Michael Conforto going with a hit and run when the guy's lost the plate anyway. Now you want to tell him to protect the runner? or he's going to swing at the pitch in the dirt and make himself look like an idiot.
0: Yeah, such an old man take where it's like, he's struggling, so force him to swing. Make him have
1: to swing the bat. It's like, I don't know if that's how we fix him. Make something happen. Of course, he did hit a ground ball to the shortstop. That did wind up being a double play. And the situation was completely reversed in the fourth inning when Buster Posey was up. And I don't remember who was on first for the Giants. And they put in a hit and run. And Lindor covered second. And there was... A ground ball no maybe it was the second base because buster Posey. is a righty but no matter what there was a hit and run put on that would have been a double play and the base runner ended up beating the throw a second base because he was in motion so when something like that happens you have to tip your cap to like the evan roberts and the colin cowherds of the world because they got you for one like just the uh the, the law of averages really came, worked in their favor but I don't know, what was your bad take of this game because there Whoa. were plenty uh what was her name um feldman kate, kate-, feldman. kate feldman first off Holy fuck, this is so
0: stupid. I can't even believe that I'm going to read this out. I can't believe this is tweeted by someone who, one, is a verified Twitter account. That just irks me that she has like 4,000 followers and is verified. Two, it bothers me that she gets paid. She gets paid to talk about baseball. This is unbelievable. It is wild that she's allowed to get paid for these opinions. Let's talk about this opinion. All right, here we go. It's actually part of a thread. So, first tweet, so Tyler McGill finally turned into a pumpkin, huh? Which, like, I honestly, I don't understand that reference. Like, what does that even mean?
1: Oh, well, that's a reference to, I believe, Cinderella. Like, the, the carriage turning into a pumpkin at midnight with the glass slipper. Is that is that a problem? I believe that means when something is really grand, but it's kind of fake, and it was like fugazi the whole time, and now it's turned back into a pumpkin. Okay. Because I believe in the story. I don't want any of the Disney heads to get my mentions for this one, but I believe that Cinderella got her beautiful gown and her really nice horse and carriage and all the jewelry and the fixings and whatever after like kind of a curse or like a gift that was given to her by someone possibly evil who had access to magic which is how most of the Disney stories wind up in the middle. We're getting crazy <laughs> off topic here. No, but that's when something turns into a pumpkin. Like, the idea is something turns back into a pumpkin. So that's the idea Tyler McGill was never good. Okay. And all of this was a facade.
0: Yeah, so that's just an insane statement to begin with, that he was never good, because he was. And then here's the second tweet, which is where I got quote-tweeted her, and I went off, and 82 more quote-tweets as well. Tyler McGill is probably a perfectly fine multi-inning reliever, and the Mets are acting like he's literally Jacob deGrom. And our then going to have no idea why they don't make the season the postseason so first off just a really long sentence i hated it it was so long that was one sentence use some punctuation kate feldman i'm gonna nitpick you for everything here two no one's comparing tyler mcgill to jacob de who on god's green earth says that tyler mcgill is the next jacob
1: Degrom? nobody i think people did those first couple weeks as like half of a joke because of all that stuff about the age and, like, the ER rate your first five career starts. But I don't think anybody with two eyes, a brain, and a beating heart actually would have compared Tyler McGill to Jacob DeGrom at any point over the last two months. And then to say Tyler McGill is the reason the Mets aren't making the postseason, why is it on his <laughs> shoulders? Why is it on the guy who never
0: pitched above double A before this year? Tyler McGill's performance, He's they're pitching him as a starter, the Mets don't make the postseason because of that. No, the Mets aren't making the postseason because this team refuses to hit and change their hitting approach. Tyler McGill has kept our team in it, if anything. I don't understand where this take comes in that, like, he's a perfectly fine multi-inning reliever. Like, he's shown he is going to be a very
1: capable starter at the Major League level. (laughs) Never threw a pitch above single A this season. But if we had to rank... Mets players on their roster in order of importance to the team's like moderate success this season Tyler McGill's easily in the top five easily 100% he has
0: been so key for this team when we haven't had Carrasco and Syndergaard as quickly
1: as we wanted and when we lost to Grom like it's just it's been a nice addition also to defend Kate Feldman and play devil's advocate for a second not defend Kate Feldman but defend one of the bad takes within her tweet like um that was chock full of bad takes there is a chance that Tyler McGill is not a major league starter akin to someone like Robert Gazelman as we get down the road, just because he does throw 60% fastballs. He needs to develop more to actually stick as a starter. He probably needs both of his off-speed pitches to wind up coming around just because neither of them are like plus plus. So you're not going to be able to be like a Oscar Yanoa who just throws fastballs and sliders and gets away with it because they're 96 miles an hour and then a devastating slider. So, like, that is true, but I think that's kind of like the blind squirrel being right twice a day. She just kind of walked into something that possibly could be true inside the bad take. Yeah, I
0: feel like Miguel's probably just going to end up being, like, a back-end reliever. Or back-end starter, I should say. My bad. Not back-end reliever. It's a Freudian slip. Yeah, Freudian slip. But anyway, this entire series has brought out all the hot takes, and they come out even more in Game 2, so let's move on to that. Because I don't think there's much else to talk about in game one. It was a shit show.
1: I'm surprised we even got 10 minutes out of game one.
0: Yeah, no, we shouldn't have. But that's what we do. We always talk about every game for 10 minutes somehow, whether we want to or not. Game two, no Francisco Lindor. Sucks, but it makes sense. Coming off of the oblique injury, coming off no rehab starts, anything like that. I I understand it. I don't kill the Mets for not starting him.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think um, a big revolution that's been happening in baseball is the idea of load management, similar to lean basketball, where... We have so much data and information at our disposal that if something doesn't register of why a player shouldn't be healthy, a lot of times you can use your eye test as a coach and see it. Even if your coaches and trainers actually miss it during the game, we have so much high speed video that, that these guys have access to after games that you can kind of always see when something isn't right. Eno has talked about this in the last episode of Rates and Barrels, but A big key this season especially he's heard from analysts is that when coaches see that a player's at-bats like very drastically decline mid-game, especially someone coming off an injury or somebody who they know is not 100%, that's an automatic key to not play someone the next day. And you mentioned that Francisco Lindor's first two at-bats on Tuesday looked great, and they did. He had great rotation. He looked like he had tons of power. He was turning on the ball, and he was lifting it. His last two at-bats on Tuesday were pretty abysmal they were okay. back to april and may francisco lindor where he was lunging at pitches outside and just rolling them over routinely to the second baseman so i think that when you know this guy has skipped his rehab assignment and is definitely not 100 physically came back about one to two weeks early from an injury that sometimes ends guy's seasons just based on the um i don't know what the word is like the how nature. fickle ob- yeah the nature and like the fickleness of an oblique especially for a hitter You really can't fault Mets management for taking him out. They got crushed. Everyone on Twitter flipped a shit on the Mets and Francisco Lindor, but that's just a no-win situation. Like, If he plays and he gets hurt that day or he plays like shit, which did wind up happening, everyone looks bad. If he doesn't play, people say shit, so that's it. The combination of disgruntled Mets fans plus the fact that
0: Lindor almost kind of called out the team a little bit, uh, before game one, talking about how, like, there's no more time. We have to start playing well now. Like, the, that's it. It's time. Time is now. We've wasted too much already, basically. I don't know what the exact quote was, but that was along the lines of it. And then to see him sit, people were like, what are we doing? Here's Rojas again, which it, it, it's incredible to me that it hasn't registered in anybody's head
1: that Rojas does not make the lineup. It is not his decision. People are also blaming Francisco Lindor for this. And I bet there was nobody on the earth who wanted to play more than Francisco Lindor yesterday. Yeah. Like, this, this guy's not built for New York. Why did he even come back? We don't even need him. Like, everyone just calm the fuck down. Every single person in Staten Island should lose their Twitter account. <laughs> rid- I just, I can't hear this shit anymore. It's unbelievable.
0: <laughs> yep. And the hot takes would keep on coming as this game gets going because, um, you know, the Mets did this this cool thing that they've been doing all year, which is they they got some hits actually. They had, what, 10 hits, I think, on the game? 10 hits. And they scored
1: two runs. Yep. And one of them was unearned.
0: Yeah. We got gifted. Gifted
1: the run. I mean. (laughs) Literally. We got a lot of gifts in this game. The Mets had base runners in eight of nine innings and hit into five double plays. We turned into the New York Yankees a little bit of old. The main New York Yankees before yes. they became one of the better teams in baseball. <laughs> Again, now with an 11-game winning streak, whatever it is. They did us a big favor by sweeping the Braves. And we just said, don't need it. Not don't want interested. It. Don't, don't care about it. Games back in the division? Nah. I was in the ballpark for this game, and this was by far the most ornery the Mets faithful has been all year. And to this point in the game, there was no more ornery moment than Javi Baez's, I'll call it a mental lapse in the second inning. The brain fart, to, to put it nicely, where he got an infield single to start the inning. Michael Conforto, I believe, drew a, a walk. No, it wasn't Michael Conforto next. Someone might have gotten a hit after him. I don't know. I think it was Dom. Maybe. I just someone got on after Javi Baez. It was first and second, nobody out. Jonathan VR at the plate, and he smoked a ball to center field. While the ball was smoked, it was very clearly hanging up in the air, and the Giants were positioned perfectly. Every single time they step on the field, we're of course going to catch it. And Javier Baez like a bolt of lightning. Takes off from second and rounds third. And you got the people in the crowd What are you doing? Where is he going? What's going on? And not only was there not one out this inning, but there were zero outs. (laughs) I don't understand if Javi Baez thought that ball was dropping, which would have been woefully incorrect. Or just had no idea how many outs there were, which would have been completely embarrassing.
0: Yeah, it wasn't good. Uh, I will say on TV, it appeared like it looked like it was going to drop. It looked like a sinking line drive that just kind of hung up. Also, Mikey Shremsky did get a fantastic jump on it because he plays a great center field. So mm-hmm. a little bit of that too. But yeah, there's really no excuse. You have to be halfway if you're going to be that aggressive. Even then on a line drive like that, like you, you shouldn't be busting it for third trying to score. But I think probably in Javi Baez's head, if he didn't forget how many outs there were, he's like, this might drop. I need to score because how the fuck else are we going to score? Because we're the Mets.
1: Which is just the wrong way to think about it because there were no outs. So yeah. you could just be on third base with no outs. Which, again, the base is low no outs. is probably the worst case scenario for the Mets offense. <laughs> <laughs> but gotta like, walk. Jesus. Yeah, maybe. I, we, we almost did that to win this game. But, like, fuck. He just murdered a rally. Like, we could have just had first and second one out, and you're still, like, in the game. And at that point... We were tied at zero. It was the second inning. Like I don't know where this wicked aggression was this early in the game. I thought that he was going to get yanked. If I'm being perfectly honest, I
0: didn't. I I didn't see a yanking coming, especially because like who are they going to put in there? Lindor. Yeah, but I, th- I think he was sitting for a reason. That was early in the game, too. No way you yank Javi in what was, what, the second, third inning to put Lindor in all of a sudden? It was the second
1: inning. Yeah. Of course, though, this was the first of five double plays in this game, and Javi did his job to hit into one two innings later when he hit a bullet down the line. This was after the Michael the walk, and he was just absolutely napping at first base, like 15 feet off the bag. In a situation where there's no way he should have been 15 feet off the bag, with a man on first, nobody on second, pro- likely being held on, Like there was just so many things that were happening early in this game that seemed so awful and like the Mets body language just like matched it.
0: We had Gary Ron and Keith in the booth for this game and all three of them constantly were saying like this is the weirdest like baseball game we've watched in a very long time. It was so bizarre with the double plays and the Giants were making errors and Jonathan VR booted a ball which will probably lead us into our Taiwan Walker talk here. It was all over the place this game. It was again performance art because somehow despite every opportunity here the Mets found a way to lose this one
1: it was even like it was so hot humid like at nine o'clock at night it was just one of those awful New York City nights that you're just at city Field sweating and you just can't even believe what you're watching and like you just mentioned this should lead into our Taiwan Walker talk because we need to mention Taiwan Walker a guy that we called out over the last six weeks or so has rebounded over his last month and returned to being a pitcher that we trust he threw one very bad pitch in this game that went like 450 feet into left center from Chris Bryan a fastball down the dick Crushed. tip your cap that happens he just <laughs> annihilated that baseball and he held the Giants basically hitless otherwise very impressive from Taiwan and even it more interesting because I didn't even feel like the entire game he had his best stuff he went four seam heavy again he threw 38 of them good for about 50% of his pitches in the game. First, just eight two-seamers. So that's a complete change that has now happened in Taiwan. There's no more two-seam fastballs happening. And while he was keeping the Giants off the board and they weren't getting any hits, he just wasn't missing any bats. He only had seven whiffs on 29 swings and just three strikeouts. And again, but there was only five hard-hit balls, so he was doing something right and keeping the Giants off balance and was commanding well. But there was like a lot of warning track power displayed by the Giants in the first seven innings of this game. And while he was like seemingly in control... It did seem like at any moment something was going to go wrong. And then t- top of the seventh inning, Jonathan Villar boots a ground ball. And then there's a blooper that falls in between Jeff McNeil, who was in legit no man's land. Yeah. It-, it was like MLB The Show when your controller gets fucked up and <laughs> yes. you like start dr- drifting to one side instead of running to the place you have to go. That was exactly what happened because he was for some reason like 10 feet right of the ball, Michael for the dove, didn't get it. And then a decision was made.
0: Yes, and that decision was to pull Taiwan Walker out of the game with basically two hits on the board and 76 pitches. Now, Mets Twitter would like to tell you that Taiwan Walker was pitching the game of the year because he got pulled, and while I don't agree with him being pulled, the process, I think, was right. And I think that's what a lot of Met fans aren't listening to, aren't thinking about. It got crazy because Gary was upset. Ron was upset. Ron, obviously, starting pitcher. He was like, I would be losing my mind. Taiwan showed a little uh, bit of emotion as well on the mound, which Gary, Ron, and Keith did not like, but they also understood that you're competing and you're pitching well and you want to be out there, especially when your team's not picking you up right now. You're trying to do anything you can. They didn't like showing up Rojas. That being said, was pulled for Aaron Loop to face Brandon Crawford, Brandon Bell. Crawford, then Yastrzemski. Oh, Crawford, Yastrzemski.
1: Then there was a right-handed hitter, and then another yes. lefty. Was it Dickerson? Dickerson had already hit. I believe he hit the ball that VR. Because there was three, three of the next four batters were lefties. That's all I know. And Kirk Casale was in the
0: middle. Yeah, so there you go. And they brought in Loop, and this drew a lot of second-guessing, a lot of questioning on Luis Rojas's part. We like to say he doesn't make the lineup. He does make the pitching decisions here. Mm -hmm. But I think he's getting killed for this and getting blamed for the Mets losing this game, even though that's just absolutely foolish to say. While Loop came in and did give up a hit immediately to Brandon Crawford. I believe it was the first pitch. First pitch, first extra base hit to a left-handed batter all season. He has worse lefty splits, Brandon Crawford, especially against facing a lefty the first time. Taiwan Walker, when he sees a left-hand batter the third time, has a pretty high OPS. So on paper, this move made sense. Watching the game, maybe you felt a little bit differently. I, I know you texted me and you're like, I don't like this, and I didn't like it either. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I can understand why this move was made.
1: This isn't why we lost the game hundred percent. And this just goes back to the fact that every single Mets fan's hindsight is twenty twenty. Because there's a universe where Taiwan Walker argues with Luis Rojas and he says, Fuck it, and he leaves him in the game. And Brandon Crawford also just gets a hit off him that people like, Rojas has to trust his gut. I can't believe he didn't bring in the lefty to face the lefties. <coughs> Matt Harvey. <coughs> twenty fifteen World Series
0: <coughs> <laughs> those Sorry. are fake. Sorry, I just I had to get that out because I know there's a lot of people who are calling for Terry Collins
1: to come back. Um, because he never made a mistake. but The other part of this that's ironic is just a couple of hundred miles away in, in Philadelphia, a team that we're chasing right now, Joe yes. Girardi twice in the last five days has left a starter in past the eighth inning and watched them blow the game between Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler. And of course, Joe Girardi is painfully aware that he has one of the worst bullpens in baseball. So bad that they had to take their only good reliever and make him a starter. Shout out my guy, Ranger Suarez. But like, that's just the other side of this coin, and I just can't, even even in a- absolute performance art fashion, last night, Jace Tingler sends Blake Snell out for the eighth inning against the Dodgers, and he gives up a big home run to Will Smith. Like, is anything more poetic than that? Like, nothing. No. Uh, people were blaming
0: analytics on this one, which I think is just so silly, because... One, like, this really isn't even an analytical move. This is, like, the the right move to make. Brandon Crawford is having arguably an MVP season if it isn't for Fernando Tatis Jr. And, and some of the other players in the National League like Freddie Freeman, Harper, Soto. Brandon Crawford's going off this year. He's playing incredible, and while Taiwan handled him pretty well the first two times... Loop is our guy. Loop has been our best reliever all year to think that we don't have the advantage Aaron Loop against Brandon Crawford as opposed to Taiwan against Brandon Crawford with what? No outs. I think there were in the inning as well. And first first and second. That's a tough jam to get out of regardless. We would have liked to have gotten out of it with only one run and end up being two. But I don't don't like the decision, but I don't hate it either. I'm just like, listen, these are the moves that are going to work sometimes and not work other times. Whatever Luis Rojas did there people would have hated it.
1: I promise that. hundred percent. And I think that if Taiwan Walker was pitching a better game, there would have been more of a chance of him staying in because he did have less than 80 pitches and it was the seventh inning and he only given up one like true hit to that point besides that stupid bloop that could have been caught if, if things were different. And what I mean by that is that if he was like striking out the world, like that game that we were at against the Cubs, where he has like ten strikeouts in seven innings and no one can touch him, and his sliders getting whiffs, and his splitters getting whiffs, and he's dotting up his fastball wherever he wants, then yeah, I would have faith in it. But the Giants were getting the bat and the ball all night, and this was just kind of some negative aggression for Taiwan's good luck in the first six innings, coming back to buy him in the ass in the seventh. So I really don't know how you can be watching this game and think it's like the most egregious decision in baseball history. To have taken Taiwan Walker out. Well, it's because this just
0: brings up the entire analytics for traditional eye test baseball debate, which, of course, is always the hottest one that there is. And just to go back to what you said about Taiwan, he pitched well, yes, but he wasn't dominant. The start against the Cubs, he was dominant. You leave in dominating pitchers, guys who are pitching well, especially where it's like he's, he's pitching a good game. I, I, I don't know, you're we're really really starting to second guess. I think Ron or Keith or Gary, I don't remember, one of the three guys up there made a really good point that he they thought that if the Mets had not been playing so terribly and needing a win so badly, that Taiwan probably stays in that game. If the Mets are still in first by a couple games, Taiwan probably stays in. But because the Mets were in need of a win so badly, and the fact that they had the Giants on their heels a little bit here, even though the Giants had, were rallying, Luis Rojas was looking to make the perfect decision, which I don't mind making the perfect decision. Why wouldn't we
1: want to make the perfect decision? The perfect decision sounds like a great decision to make. I would love every decision in my life was the perfect decision. Like, I think that's what we should be looking for. I think that's why teams like
0: the Giants and the Rays are able to get more out of these guys because they put them in the perfect scenarios to succeed. It's just unfortunate that Brandon Crawford is scorching earth this year and has become a fantastic hitter in his 36-year-old season out of nowhere. I mean... Aaron Loop, are we going to get mad at him? They they started firing Rojas' chance. That's crazy. I mean, I think Rojas is probably going to get canned now. I, it just feels like it's it's inevitable. I don't agree with it, especially because he's had basically a season and you haven't even given him a shot, really. But, mm-hmm. my God, we're going to blame... We, we have the gall to blame this game on Rojas' decision when the offense had 10 fucking hits and scored two
1: runs. Two runs! I have a pretty hot take coming out of this game that this wasn't even close to the worst decision that Luis Rojas made. Oh, yeah. I don't think that many people even remember because of how hectic the last three innings this game got. But in the fifth inning, the Mets had Johnny Cueto on the ropes, pitching in his first game off the IL in almost a month. Jonathan Villar drew a walk, and Taiwan got a two-out single, which big ups for Taiwan Walker for two two left-handed knocks in this game. Nice little lefty swing. One of the 98 miles an hour off the bat. That's fucking incredible shit. Michael Conforto should, should learn a thing or two there. And then Brandon Nimmo draws a walk to load the bases for Pete. Pete hits a pretty lazy ground ball and is like kind of dogging it. And Chris Bryant just mails one, which is wow. Holy shit. The Mets actually tied this game. They scored the run and we have a shot here. So now with the bases loaded, two outs, and Jeff McNeil coming to the plate, the Giants opted for the lefty, Jose Alvarez. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs that J.D. Davis should have been sent up as a pinch hitter. Especially, or possibly Francisco Lindor. And I thought at this time maybe Lindor was on the bench because he was getting a night off, but he came in this game two innings later and stayed in for a second at bat and played the field. So I don't really think it would have been that crazy of a thing to bring him in in the fifth, or at least give J.D. this at bat against the lefty with the bases loaded with a chance to give your team the lead, especially the way Jeff McNeil struggled, especially the way he has not been able to hit left-handed pitching this season, especially the way he has not been able to really rein in his emotions in big spots like this. I thought that was the chess move to make. That is what a team like the Dodgers or the Giants or the Rays would do in a situation like such with a chance where you can dramatically increase your win probability with one swing of the bat. And that was where I think Luis Rojas needed to make a better move. Giants gave us a gift when they put in that left-handed pitcher. It's not a guarantee that JD comes
0: up to the plate and does anything better than McNeil, but again, going back to what I just said and we've been talking about with these Giants and Rays teams... You put your team, you put your players in the best chance to succeed. Jeff McNeil's chances to get a hit off of Alvarez are far worse than J.D. Davis's chances to get a hit off of Alvarez, the left-handed reliever. That one, if there is a big decision I feel like to question, that might really be the one because they had a chance to
1: really break that game open. Definitely, especially because Jeff McNeil came out of this game two innings later. Yeah. Like, if this was something that was even on your radar at all, why wouldn't it have just happened? Like, I just can't seem to wrap my mind around the fact that this wasn't even a consideration. And it was crazy because as this pitching change was happening, JD Davis was stirring in the dugout. I saw him take things out of his pockets and then he like went from the rail and back. And then he didn't, he didn't show up again. Until midway through the at bat. So it seemed like maybe it was a consideration. Again, this is just all my view from like the 400s level into the dugout. But I just think this was such a slam dunk move and the move that the best teams in baseball make.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that's definitely a a bigger issue than the walker one people are going to care about the walker one more because it's easier to talk about it's easier to explain and it's easier to be you know the monday morning quarterback hindsight's 2020 because you say left taiwan walker and there's no shot ch- there's a there's a chance taiwan walker gives up a three-run home run there to brandon crawford it's just it's
1: how it could go it was a good shot and i honestly tip my cap to aaron loop to getting out of that inning just giving up the one run because he had now at that point well two runs two runs correct two runs yeah the two-run double he the man second nobody out and a bunch of righties coming up. And he be bared down. He got he made some plays. They tried to catch him sleeping. Austin Slater tried to take third and someone actually got Luke's attention. We got him out, which was that was good heads up play by the defense. You like that we're playing there, but all the air was let out after this, and we just didn't really have a shot afterwards. Faded into the night, we saw Tyler Rogers come up, and while Tyler Rogers had a good year, there's no reason to not hit Tyler Rogers. It really isn't. It's not not hitting Tyler Rogers. It's appearing that you're completely unaware that Tyler Rogers exists. The Mets faced Tyler Rogers a week ago. You should have video of Tyler Rogers all over your scattering reports because you know you're going to face him in another three-game series, and you just saw him. He th- throws the slowest pitches in baseball. He is a submariner. Like How are we not studying up on Tyler Rogers? The Mets' three batters that inning just seemed woefully unprepared. They were swinging out of their shoes at 72-mile-an-hour curveballs and 83-mile-an-hour fastballs. This was the only inning of the Mets' game that they did not have a base runner.
0: It's like when we face Cesar Valdez or the Orioles, except this guy just throws submarine.
1: Yeah, but we won the game against Cesar Valdez. Yeah,
0: we did not win the game against the Giants here. Like you said, we did not get a base runner this inning against him. That really stunk. And then the ninth was exciting-ish. Yes. Also like, God damn it, Mets. Fuck you. Stop getting me into these games when you're just going to let me down. There's been too much of that this year. And it happened again in the ninth. We were given gifts from the baseball gods. They said, here, we, we've we tried to give you everything. We'll give you two more. Here's two errors for you Brandon Belt dropping the pop-up uh which was
1: wild I've never seen Brandon Belt do that I don't think that's anywhere near as wild to the dropped can of corn well that's even field. crazier yeah that was one of the craziest plays I've ever seen live in the baseball game
0: which is interesting because this also almost happened in game one between I think Dickerson and Ustremsky. now Ustremsky wasn't in center I think they had Slater in this time mm-hmm. because of the pitching matchup but they collided in the outfield basically went after the same ball Clank drops. Mets are still alive.
1: We got another chance. Even though the game should have been dead and over with. And Francisco Lindor coming up, should felt kind of like, I don't know, felt kind of like poetic for a moment there. It's like third time I've used that word this episode, but something felt like it was in the air, and he just popped up on the first pitch. Popped it right up. And that is on the heels of probably the worst at bat he's had all season against Tyler Rogers in the seventh, where he he looked at the fastball and then he swung at two pitches that were thrown 57 feet. And it just seems like abundantly clear that he might not be ready. Yeah, it was it was so painful to watch that
0: and then of course we got Pete coming up as well, popping up with the bases loaded to end it.
1: Nimo worked a great at bat in between to yes. draw a walk. Had a couple of nice foul balls. wasn't like passive Nimmo drawing walks. He was couple out there nice foul the balls. Bat. And we had a lot of great foul balls this game. That's had some amazing foul balls all night.
0: But Pete let us down a little bit here. He, but he had a good at bat. But like also good But also like not really in the fact that like these pitches were like down the middle and he kept fouling them off, fouling them off. It looked like Pete was trying to work a walk. It didn't feel like Pete was trying to get a hit there.
1: I don't like to hear that. Hittable
0: pitches, very, very hittable. You want to talk about heart of the plate? Ty, uh, not Tyler Rogers. Jake McGee was throwing them oh in the God. heart of the plate, and all he was throwing was fastballs. And Pete seemingly was just like, "I'm going to keep fouling him and keep fouling him and keep fouling." Jake
1: him. McGee only throws fastballs. That's his thing. He yeah. did drop the changeup to actually get Pete to hit the ground ball, which you knew was going to happen because he just threw him five straight fastballs. And like, Jake McGee throws eighty percent of his pitches, ninety-three mile an hour fastballs. He will like usually put them on the edges. But it's ninety-three mile an hour fastballs every single pitch. Like at some point, someone has to get around that on one, and we didn't that entire inning. Yeah, no,
0: we didn't. We we just we just stunk. We went ten hits, two runs, five double plays, a questionable pitching change, a questionable hitting decision with pinch hitting, bad baseball, bad baseball all around by the Mets, and that's kind of just been the theme of the last two weeks and this series again. Just bad baseball. Ugh, I just I'm I'm so not excited listening to all the takes that we've been hearing about Rojas and anti analytics and stuff. When you when you literally are losing a series to a team that has fully embraced analytics, like how can you be so fucking thick in the head to say analytics is what lost this game and then see
1: the team that we're playing and say that is even crazier. Analytics lost this game. The Mets just need hitters like Lamont Wade, real baseball players like that. That's yes. how the Mets are going to end up winning. No, yeah, of course. Brain-dead behavior.
0: Michael Conforto, Jeff McNeil, guy, Francisco Lindor not getting hits. It's because of analytics. It's, it has nothing to do with them struggling this year mightily. Annoying, whatever. Lead us into Game 3. And Game 3 was miserable because, yeah, that's Mets baseball against the Giants and Dodgers. It's miserable. It's awful. And my God, do we suck. This team is Dead. I hate to be that guy. I've been I've been doing it the last few episodes, but oh, this game so so winnable again, and the Mets just they got nothing. They got nothing. The top of the
1: order tried, but that's about it. I have to ask you, what the fuck is going on with these first inning home runs? I know Carrasco has done it literally every single start this year, but it's so hard to win a game when you can't score. You have no life. And your bullpen is due to give up runs when you give up a home run within the first three batters of the game.
0: Yeah, I think with Carrasco, it seems like the first inning for him is very much like feeling it out. And he changes his repertoire, it feels like, after the first inning. So much so that Gary and Ron even made note of it. They're like, Carrasco's completely changed how he's pitched and approached hitters after the first inning. So maybe it's he's throwing too many fastballs. Maybe he's just telegraphing, like, here's what I'm going to do. It's very, like, straightforward. Maybe he does the same thing every time in the first inning, and a team like the Giants and the Dodgers are just going to jump on it because they know it. I don't know. It's weird. The other weird thing with it is he pitched really well after that. He had a fantastic start, easily his best start of the year, which is so
1: hard to say after you see a first-inning two-run home run like that. It's funny you mentioned that Gary Keith and Ron talked about that, because I've been talking about that for the last few episodes when breaking down Carrasco starts. And interestingly enough, like you are right, the home run he gave up to Chris Bryant in the first inning was on a slider, a pitch that Carlos Carrasco has featured most of his starts this year. And he almost entirely threw the pitch out after that. He only threw two more the rest of the game. And they came in the second and the second inning. So after the second inning, there were no sliders from Carlos Carrasco, and he completely shifted his entire game to throwing a curveball, something he's done barely at all so far this season. And he did wind up pitching super well again after the first inning. Like, we're broken records at this point, but he was really efficient. He only threw 78 pitches in seven innings. He was giving up mostly fly balls that were being hit, like, moderately hard at times, but they were finding gloves similar to Taiwan the other night. And every single ground ball the Giants hit off of Carlos Carrasco was converted for an out, which I thought was a pretty cool fun fact. No, it was really
0: nice. It also helps that we had, you know, Lindor and Javi Baez up the middle for this game, which they're just vacuums up the middle. They're going to make all the plays. They're two of the best gloves in the game up the middle. It makes sense why the ground balls are working. It just, it just sucks that, like you said, we start off in a hole, and for this team that seemingly needs every single thing to go right for them to even maybe win a game. I mean, we had it in game two. Everything went right for us, and we still lost that one. This game, again, uh, the double plays were killing me. I fucking hate ground balls. I hate them. I can't stress it enough. And the thing that annoyed me even more was they had Hojo on. uh, Howard Johnson, for those of you who don't for some reason know that nickname. Great Met in the 80s kind of a like weird little player like had a really good run and that was kind of it but he was sick during his run he was talking about hitting approach and they asked him like you know this was kind of not how you approached hitting what's your thoughts on it and he did something that makes me cringe and I know it's gonna make you cringe and he's like these launch angle swings and it's like oh it's not what it is and to hear that and then watch the Mets ground into what three or four more double plays this game it's like how can people still not understand that one it's it's not a launch angle swing. It's an, it's an effort to hit the ball in the air. It's, it has nothing to do with, like, your swing has to match a launch angle. No, it's the idea of hitting the ball with rise, hitting the ball with lift, hitting it with some authority. You hit the ball on the ground, you're going to make outs, and that's what the Mets did again, and it's just like, I don't... It's impossible to not hit ground balls, and yes, Alex Wood, I think, had, like, one of the highest ground ball rates in the league, but the idea that the Mets... Seemingly just don't hit the ball in the air for any sort of power outside of Pete Alonso is so incredibly frustrating.
1: I can't even sympathize with any Met fan who thought we were going to hit Alex Wood. Like Alex Wood is the archetype to just destroy the Mets. He is. There's no shot. Dominic Leon was the only giant this game to throw a pitch over 95 miles an hour. Oh which God I think that might have been true, honestly, for like the whole series. Because we didn't face Kevin Kausman. They just don't have a lot of arms that have that kind of stuff, if any. And that's as a recipe for disaster for the Mets. Well Not that we we also can't hit hard fastballs. We definitely can't hit soft breaking balls either. No chance. No.
0: We we can't hit sinkers. We can't hit fastballs. We can't hit sliders. We can't hit curveballs. We can't hit changeups. Um, here we go, guys. We can't hit. Outside of Pete Alonso and Brandon Nimmo, this team can't hit. And let me go on my Brandon Nimmo rant right now because it's fresh on my mind. Fuck and I hate instant replay at times. It's so stupid. It's so dumb. The Giants made the right call. Of course you like people I put out a tweet and people were like Oh, you're mad that the Giants did the instant replay? No, I'm mad that Brandon Nimmo is off of second base for literally a thousandth of a second. A thousandth of a second. He's safe. He touches the bag before he gets tagged. He slides over it. And for, I mean, this much, he's off the bag. If you're watching the video version, it is, you could fit a piece of paper between there. And for some reason, he's called out. I mean, we've seen instant replay miss easy calls one with Brandon Nimmo against the Yankees this year where he was clearly on first base before Luke Voigt caught the ball and they called him out so I don't understand why instant replay is so inconsistent the Giants made the right call he was technically off the base he was technically out one that's not what instant replay is for it's not for the plays that are like you're trying to steal one there it's supposed to be for the erroneous calls and then two yeah uh, why, why where's the consistency how can sometimes they be out sometimes they be safe There's just, there's a clear issue with instant replay, and I sound like a broken record, and I sound like an angry Mets fan, because I am, and this really didn't matter in the game at the end of the day, like, it was the third out of the inning, nobody was on base, but I just hate sometimes how this game is played in terms of the instant replay rules, and the fact that you can call up to the booth, and they can look at a video and tell you, it's gotta be something, it's gotta be a split second decision. No more of this. There's a guy up in the booth who actually gets to see the video and break it down. And you go, "Oh, hold on, umpire, give me give me 25 seconds." It's got to be play happen, boom. That's it, done. Like I, there's so many issues with instant replay. I hope it gets addressed to the new CBA.
1: I don't think there's any chance it gets addressed. I think that is so far down the laundry list of issues between the players and the owners and the league that there's no way. I do agree with you though that it is just bullshit that. Teams can run their own instant replay review before any other instant replay review happens. Like you shouldn't be able to get on that phone. Like it should be like how um, wasn't that rule? How football is. But football, they do the, they do similar shit. so someone. No, t- they don't. I, I'm guarantee you, there's someone in that headset talking to the head coach who's looking for the challenge flag and his shirt and his socks and his pants. I, I guess maybe. I don't know. It's just it's it feels like it's
0: so like wrong to be able to look at the video and go ah now we got him it it should be something that you have to make on the field because then it kind of takes more value with these challenge calls it makes it a lot more strategic instead of being like oh i know it's a guaranteed i'm gonna do it
1: but isn't that a little bit to some degree the point like it's just to get every call right it's just what we've gotten by right is some really awful calls guys popping off bases i mean like also think about like the alec
0: bohm thing uh, on that sunday night baseball game with the phillies and braves where he was clearly out at the plate and they called him safe like it's it's annoying when they miss the really obvious ones and then for some reason they decide to get really specific on this one and they find the one frame in the entire thing where he is off the base and he's tagged and he's out I just on top of everything that was happening in this game with the double plays and the first inning home run and the Mets just anemic offense this put me over the top and I turned off the game I had enough I was not watching it anymore I watched the Bob Ross documentary on Netflix way better time <laughs>
1: Oh, so you missed the fact that Seth Lugo blew the
0: game. Well, I mean, I missed it, but I was on Twitter every single, every five minutes, so I didn't miss it at all, actually. In fact, I saw the meltdown happening live just through Twitter.
1: It's a real shame, because Seth Lugo has been throwing so well. This is the first earned run he'd given up since that horrific Jacob Stallings night in July when the Mets season died. We just didn't know it yet. Yeah, no, uh, you can definitely circle that as, hey, remember when the Mets lost to the Pirates? That's when we officially knew, oh, shit. We're in trouble. Not a good team. And we also did that really cool thing again where we got a hit every single inning, except the inning against Tyler Rogers. Well,
0: Tyler Rogers, we've never seen this guy pitch before,
1: right? No. This is clearly, this had to be the first time we saw him all season. Tyler Rogers has been reincarnated. He pitched in an era with no video or photography. So we just don't know about Tyler Rogers. Now Tyler Rogers out there throwing submarine guys like, oh my God, is that a witch?
0: Yeah, it's it's so, I mean, I'm glad I didn't have to watch it because, again, I'm just so, I'm at a boiling point where I'm like, I'm done, the guys who are here, I want here, and get rid of everybody else, I'm done, bring in new players, it's, I'm scorched earth, tear it down, well, not tear it down, I don't think the Mets should tear it down, but tear down the guys who shouldn't be here, that's what I'm saying, let's get good players, I'm so sick and tired of seeing Kevin Pillar play every fucking day. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about some of the future Mets here. Let's do a prospect report. We are going to have the Francisco Alvarez interview coming out a little bit later because James is going to be on the road and this episode is going to drop a little bit later than we normally wanted. So we're going to have Francisco Alvarez maybe drop this weekend. Is that what we said? Monday morning, you'll have Francisco Alvarez. As long as, is that okay? Can can they have Francisco Alvarez Monday morning? They can have Francisco Alvarez. I think you guys deserve it. You've been giving us good ratings, reviews, and listens. And let's talk about the guy if we're not going to give you the interview right now. Because while his average and his discipline has dropped a
1: little bit in Brooklyn, he's so strong. He just hits the ball so hard. Now, the guy is a legitimate menace, and there was always a chance that Francisco Alvarez was going to regress going from low A to high A, just because while that is a big jump in terms of skill level, that's also a very large adjustment because you're losing the automatic strike zone. Which is huge from what we've heard from these guys' interviews. 100%, especially Francisco being a catcher. He's much more aware of it. and. That's just a weird thing to lose. Having something that's like perfect, clean, automatic, and consistent to just not anymore. It's kind of like you had to relearn your sport for a few months and now you're doing it the old way again. So That's hard, but holy shit has this guy's power gone to a completely new level since he got promoted to Brooklyn. He had 16 home runs since he was called up. That's a lot. That's a lot Massive of home runs for a minor league. leaguer. He had a stretch a couple weeks ago where he hit 5 and 8 games and he is just really hitting that power stride. And we do know the plate discipline is there. So once he does fully adjust... It's going to happen, and he's going to have those 15% K rates again with the 10% walk rates, because he is still walking 11% of the time without the automatic strike zone against players multiple years older than him in a foreign land. I'll even throw that in there. And just the fact that he has still struggled with that part of his game, I think he is going to ride out the rest of the season in Brooklyn, and you probably won't see him till Binghamton until next season. But the fact that he's going to start next season in Binghamton means that he actually has an outside shot to play for the Mets in 2022
0: definitely especially if McCann and Nito continue to be just not very good mm-hmm. there's a very easy path to the majors for Francisco Alvarez I also think it's worth noting that it's impossible to hit in Brooklyn so that probably has to do a little bit with the numbers and we talk about City Field's batter eye being bad Brooklyn's batter eye is atrocious there's roller coasters and lights they're batter's eye they put up like a chain link fence with black sheet over it, like you can mesh. see right through it, right through it, right through it. So you see what's that? What's the roller coaster? The cyclone. You see that and all the the lightning bolt or the jolt thunderbolt, whatever it's called. Ferris wheel.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot going on over there. So
0: I'm not gonna go crazy about the K rate.
1: There's a lot going on without even including the ridiculous winds coming off the Atlantic Ocean, which is a hundred yards away from the left field fence. It's just there's yeah. a lot happening there and. I cannot really fault Francisco Alvarez from all we've seen from his play discipline through his minor league career thus far to think that something is going to continue.
0: Yep. And then let's talk about his teammate, Ronnie Mauricio. Of course, we dropped the interview with him on the YouTube channel, but you guys heard that on the podcast a couple weeks ago now, or last Mm -hmm. week, I guess. Ronnie uh, is also having some interesting stuff going on. The power is definitely legit. It seems like he has finally developed that power that we've all been waiting for. The thing that's kind of been missing from his game
1: Re- uh, when he was younger I mean as he said he just got that New York City food he put the weight on it's all he really needed but something kind of funny about Mauricio is he has the exact same batting average as Francisco Alvarez a clean 237 which ooh, that's is hot which is really <laughs> ooh that's hot Which is, and he has one more home run so these two guys are just like Spider-Man memeing right now and Ronnie's coming off his best game at Brooklyn this past Tuesday where he went three for three with a home run a triple stolen base three runs scored four RBIs and most importantly a base on balls. That Woo-hoo! that vaunted walk that Ryan Mauricio has had a lot of trouble finding over the course of his career. And just, since he has all these physical tools and he already has this immense power, t- the ripe age of 21, play discipline is going to be the determining factor in whether he becomes a major league caliber player, a major league superstar, or just winds up being stuck in the minor leagues. Going into today, he has walked in three straight contests, five out of six games, and seven out of nine games. Those Ooh. seven walks that he's gotten in the last nine games account for one-third of his walks all season. Oh, man. We're talking to Med Rosario
0: numbers hundred percent. <laughs>
1: this, this also coincides a little bit with our, you know, meeting him. So, I don't want to give too much credit to the Mets Up Podcast for getting Ron Mauricio to start walking for the first time as a pro, but it's a pretty big development. I, I think we might have something to do with it. Yeah, and
0: also, uh, another guy that we talked to, Jalen Palmer, he got his first home run. Yeah. That happened after
1: we talked to him, too, so we will... Uh, Somehow, a roundabout way, we'll take a little credit for these guys playing well. A touch, just a little bit. I think that uh, the guys in Brooklyn, the guys in Brooklyn you be remembering the Mets podcast. Of course, for sure. Now let's talk about some of the guys in Binghamton. Mark Vientos,
0: my God, he is just completely, I don't want to say he's changed the outlook of himself because he was, he was a top prospect in the Mets organization, but I think he changed the outlook of himself. I was going to say he's raised his,
1: I think, like ceiling for sure. I think he's also raised his floor tremendously, just based on the fact that he's now jumped a level after the year off, and his strikeout rate is basically in the same spot, and he's basically doubled his walks as well, almost, between 4.8% and 9%, so... That is huge. That's massive. He has become so good. He has the highest WRC Plus in the Eastern League, higher than Adley Rushman, and Riley Green. Two of the top five prospects in baseball. Consensus top 15, any board you look, and top five in a lot of places. Adley number one in some places, too. It's such a revelation that Mark Vientos has realized his potential as a first-round pick finally after these years. And while there's still a long way to go in his development, because he's going to start next year in AAA, like, no doubt about it, and he doesn't really have a defensive home, it's pretty comforting to know that, at worst, this guy is going to be able to hit enough to make an impact on the Major League roster, especially because... With Brett Beatty's promotion, Fientos has now played twelve games in left field at Binghamton. And while we don't have that many defensive uh stats or metrics to look at for minor league de- outfield defense, he's made no errors. And that's good enough for
0: me. That means that he can't be worse than Dom Smith. So that's all I need to hear. We've been playing Dom Smith out in left field for over a year now. So he can't be worse than that. That's what it sounds like to me.
1: Maybe we should have made Dom Smith a left fielder when he was twenty one. We could have had a shot here.
0: I know, right? I think actually
1: I think he was too too chubby back then. You know, he was he had a little bit of weight on him.
0: And then there's some other guys in uh, Binghamton that are actually hitting really well. Jake Mangum, who I, I talked about him at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. Big Jake Mangum guy over here. He's playing really well. Carlos Cortez, former Gamecock. I mean, the SEC is represented in this Mets farm system. I love to see it. Both of those guys, top 25 in WRC plus in the Eastern League as
1: well. Yeah, definitely. And Mangum is the guy I really want to focus on today because while Cortez has been hitting all year and it's pretty positive element that he hasn't been able to hit all year, Mangum had a really tough stretch to start his career in double-A and has been an absolute house on fire for the last month or so. He's riding a 13-game hitting streak right now where he's hitting four fifty eight over that span, and he has put up a home run in back-to-back games, showing off power that not a lot of scouts thought he had. It was like a fifth or seventh-round pick, whatever he wound up being.
0: Yeah, he showed almost no power uh, in college. He hit, like I think, like three or four home runs a year. He was an average guy. Average guy, played good outfield. That's what he was. Seeing a little bit of power here is nice because we know he can swing the bat for average at least.
1: Definitely. And he has been playing reportedly a good outfield. He's made multiple diving catches over the last couple of days. Three in one game on Wednesday night, which is pretty funny. If anyone follows Jacob Resnick on Twitter, he's always posting great videos of the Mets minor leaguers. And while we have learned from defense metrics and analytics that diving catches do not really signify being a good outfielder, but I'm at least confident that Jake Mangum will be a plus corner outfielder if he does not stick in center, just based on his athleticism alone.
0: I was about to say, it tells me that he's an athlete. If you can dive, there's a difference between a diving catch and a sliding catch. Dom Smith is the master of the sliding catch. Jake Mangum, Brandon Nimmo, we're going to lay out and we're going to dive. I like to see that. That means you can at least move your body in an
1: athletic movement of some (laughs) sorts. Move your body in athletic movement. We're going to put that on a sticker. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Just to flip to the other side of the coin here, the one guy at Binghamton who is struggling with the bat is Brett Beatty. His WRC plus has sunk below 100 over the last uh, week or so, which means that he is now worse than league average at that level. Which I don't want to say it's concerning because this is his first, um, this is his first introduction to double A pitching. But he's also like 37 years old, so I'd like to see guys his age. (laughs) I'd like to see him like be a little bit better against guys his age. He's striking out 26% of the time, but that's like exactly where he was in Brooklyn, just with way less extra base hits, even though the power is still there with five home runs in 34 games. So don't be alarmed, but maybe this guy is just not on like the ridiculous... Meteoric trajectory that we thought he was about a month ago when Fangrass yeah. put him in the top thirty.
0: Yeah, wasn't your your bold prediction again? Bold prediction. Wasn't you saying he could be the DH opening day if we have a DH
1: or something like that? Yeah, DH opening there that we could see him with a September call up. Maybe I'll pump yes. the brakes on that one. Maybe maybe mid year twenty twenty two. <laughs> yeah, it, it, which is fine. Again, it's fine. Like there's there's no
0: need to rush. I know I said it last episode. I want to see guys rush, but that's because I was in crazy Mets land and I had to I had to get taken out of the abyss that is Mets Twitter right now because it is just assess pool but it's horrific there are some pitchers doing well though in Binghamton
1: there are a lot of pitchers doing well right now one guy particularly Jose Budo who I mentioned about two months ago after a great run in Brooklyn is lighting the world on fire at Binghamton he won the Eastern League pitcher of the week two weeks ago after like a devastating seven inning I think eight or nine strikeout performance overall at the level he has a 2.5 VRA and 31% strikeout rate which is just astronomically good for a guy who just got moved up to the level he has command of two off-speed pitches, a very good slider, and a very a good, good changeup. The fastball's not super exciting, but if you have two off-speed pitches, that at least gives you like a massive leg up at that level. And he's going to be on the 40-man roster this offseason because he is Rule 5 eligible. So there's a good chance we see my boy Jose Budo at City Field next year. Another guy who's very under the radar, who's been pitching well for Binghamton, is someone by the name of Jared Robinson. The Mets picked him up this offseason after he was uh, let go by Cleveland. He's, so, he's a little bit of an older dude, 26 years old, and he has a 34% strikeout rate at Binghamton, a 3.8 ERA, which the ERA is pedestrian, but in the minor leagues, you really want to look more towards swing and miss stuff, strikeouts, missing bats, because there's a lot that goes into ERA. Minor league, minor league fielders are much worse than fielders at the major league level, so that kind of thing can not really mean everything sometimes, but he has a very legit slider, he sits mid-90s with the fastball. At worst, Mez might have gotten a competent reliever for free, which
0: is pretty fucking cool. Yeah, that is cool to see. Uh, Don't know a lot about these guys, but I know that Jose Budo has been a guy that you've been talking about a little bit, so I'm excited to see that he is still pitching well and maybe is a guy that we can look to in 2022, like you said. And then there's also one more guy that I think is deserving some mention here because he was a draft pick last year. Fifth-round pick. I think he came from the University of New Orleans, which is not a baseball hotbed by any means. Is it Eric Orze? I don't know how to pronounce his name.
1: I would say Orze, and then maybe... We'll find out in the next episode.
0: He's pitching well. He's jumped up all the way to Syracuse after starting the year in Brooklyn. While he's getting hit a little bit, he's still being serviceable. And the fact that he's been moved up in the organization so quickly just shows that maybe he's a reliever that they think they can make into a piece at some point to get some reasonable innings. You know, again, maybe better than some
1: of the guys that we've seen come up and pitch, like Jeff Hartlieb. Jeff, we really pick on Jeff Hartlieb on this show. But sorry, Jeff. Just the fact that Eric Orze was the fifth round pick in the very famous five round draft of twenty twenty, means that the Mets see a lot in him as a prospect. And he ripped through uh ripped through the leagues in Brooklyn and Binghamton. He had a thirty five percent K rate in Brooklyn. I think like a thirty eight or thirty nine percent K rate in Binghamton with ERA's and the twos at both levels. Wow. And he still has a twenty eight percent K rate in like five or six appearances so far for Syracuse, just getting hit. That's gonna happen because he was pitching in single A two months ago, so I think he is someone that we're going to see probably in the 40-man roster this offseason and could definitely see him become one of our depth relievers very soon. And then just quick
0: little check-in on some guys that we've been talking about throughout the year who are struggling a little bit here. JT Ginn, which is unfortunate. He's kind of struggling in Brooklyn, but again, he's coming back from Tommy John, his first time in professional baseball. Understandable, but we want to
1: obviously keep an eye on what's going on down there in Brooklyn with him. Yeah, definitely. He He's kind of relearning how to pitch, because that's just what happens after Tommy John surgery, and the results were good at first, and they've not been good recently. His ERA is over 6 over his last 5 starts, and he's only striking out 18% of batters. That's kind of a bummer, especially in a league where offense doesn't really reign supreme, but you kind of just have to throw this year out with him, just make sure he's healthy and okay, and then run him out there again next year, and you hope you see a little bit more velocity, better command of his off-speed stuff, and he delivers on the high prospect pedigree that we know he has. Should have interviewed with us. We could know, have turned his entire right? season around. It's ironic that he was the one guy who did not. Not his fault. He just didn't have time, but really could have made a difference there. Jake could have C made a difference. got to hold a slider like this, man. This is going to do it for you. <laughs> yeah,
0: hear from the guys who played high school baseball. Let them tell you what's going on. And then the last guy, Alex Ramirez, who's your boy. Mm-hmm. He's still 18 years old, so whatever. But he's struggling in St. Lucie for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely. He's about 10% worse than league average right now, striking out over 30% of the time, which I don't love to see, but... He's 18 years old. He is older than basically all of the Mets playing in the Florida Complex League. The Mets have just a lot of unimpressive like 20 and 21-year-old playing down there because Alex Ramirez is the only international signing besides Francisco Alvarez. They've given over a million dollars in the last four off-seasons. So just to pull some positives out of this, he still has an 8% walk rate as an 18-year-old playing with guys in their 20s, which is super-duper impressive. And he has five home runs as a guy who's real thin and, again, 18 years old. And he's stealing bases like a madman just because all the crazy rules down there that we've spoken about before with the pickoffs. And I believe that's actually the only rule down there with the pickoffs. So this is still actually a positive season, I would say. Just a year of professional baseball for
0: an 18-year-old at that level probably is a positive thing. You've seen the Yankees put Jason Dominguez in their, on their A-team level, and he's struggling a little bit too in his few games that he's played. So it's understandable. When you're young like that, it's a hard adjustment, adjustment especially when you didn't have a pro season last year too. So it's going to happen. I don't think it's anything to take concern of. But that's going to wrap up our Mets Farm Report here uh, on episode number 44 of the Mets Up Podcast. Let's go ahead and do our preview. Silver lining. We got the Washington Nationals coming up, and boy, does that team stink more than the Mets. But I guess that anything can happen with the way that this team's playing. If you put up two or three runs, you are going to lose to the Nationals. I don't care how bad they are. Every single team in Major League Baseball can score two or three runs on a given night. The Orioles have been scoring 13 runs the last few games against the Angels. So, I mean... Do we got a shot. Who are they pitching? Does it doesn't really matter. I don't know.
1: You want to know the names? I'll tell you the names.
0: Yeah, let's find out who these jokes are that are going to be throwing against us.
1: Friday night, Palo Espino. Sick. Sick. Can't touch him. No, we can't hit him. No chance. Saturday evening is Sean Nolan. Who I just saw the name Nolan. I had to click him because I I didn't know the first name. N o l i n I believe too. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do yeah. you have a language of origin too? Uh, maybe uh, German. I think it could be Polish. I don't. I'm not sure. That's a fair guess. And then on Sunday, we have, we have the vaunted ace, Eric Fetty, ready to, ready to snatch our hearts.
0: Fetty Wap, that dude. Fetty Wap. If he's not going to throw well, he's going to at least drop a banger. Ah, God, if we can't hit these guys. It, I'm going to say something crazy here. If you go hitless in this series. Hitless? Hitless. A player. If you're a player who goes hitless in this series, oh. <laughs> we should take a deep look into whether or not you should be on this team the next year.
1: Or whether or not you should be a professional baseball player at all. Yeah,
0: like, uh, okay, outside of Lindor, Alonzo, Nimmo, and McNeil. If you don't get a hit during this series, you are not on the team next year. I do not care. You're done. <laughs> Banish. Cut him right now. Cut them where they stand. I, I, if you can't get hits off of a Shaw, Sean Nolan, who I think might throw 88 if I had to guess, left-handed, is that how it works? Let's see.
1: I bet he's a lefty. He sounds like a lefty.
0: He is a lefty. Yeah. Ah, New Yorker. he's got to throw 88. There's no way he throws harder than 88 miles an hour. And Eric Fetty, we can't get hit off those guys. And then the Nationals bullpen, which is also just made-up players. You shouldn't
1: be on a major league roster. (laughs) Sean Sean Nolan's whip is 2.4 in the season. That's so bad. Holy shit. He gives you two-and-a-half batters
0: on base an inning. The Mets will find a way to not score. I guarantee it. I guarantee we score one off
1: of him. We've let everybody know the Mets get on base at will. The Mets on base percentage isn't even awful. It's definitely not good. When Sny dropped that stat on Thursday afternoon, they, uh auspiciously omitted on base percentage because the Mets is probably actually even and every single stat they dropped on there was 30th, 29th, 24th, 26th, 28th, 26th, 23rd.
0: Yeah, let's go through it. Let's go through it real quick because they dropped almost every single offensive stat and it was funny because they even dropped at-bats. The Mets have just had
1: the least amount of at-bats in baseball. I don't know how that happens, but 30th. They've gotten around the fewest amount of times and they yeah. also probably still have like three or four less games than everybody else, which is such a hilarious thing to still think about. 30th and at-bats, 29th in hits, 29th in runs, 26th in home runs, 29
0: in RBIs, 29th in doubles. We're going to keep going. 29th in total bases, 26th in average, 27th in slugging, 26th in OPS, 25th in average a- exit velo, 21st in hard hit rate. You know what that tells me? Mets can't hit.
1: Can I give you a rosier picture? Yeah, give me a rosy picture. Mets are 20th in on-base percentage. Whoa, only the bottom third of the league, but we're the best of the worst. We're right there, right there. Ahead of the Marlins, ahead of the Royals, ahead of the Mariners, ahead of the Cubs, the Tigers, the Cardinals, the Rangers. These are juggernauts. Those are some really tough teams to beat, let me tell you. Yo, behind, behind the Diamondbacks. Of course,
0: wow, that's bad. <laughs> God, can you, can, mets up listeners, can you even name the four guys on the Diamondbacks team right now? I don't think you can. That hit. I think the top four there, their
1: order I could probably name. All right, go. Go for it. I just want to try this out. Let's see. Um, Josh Rojas, Catal Marte, Dalton Varshow, and why the Oh, the trailer of there. That's yeah. good Fuck. Pavin. Pavin Smith. Maybe. Is Dalton Varsho even playing? Dalton Varsho has been scorching hot for the last two weeks. Okay, good. I have some autographed cards in We're going to sell those. Because he's probably selling the next couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, but eh, whatever. We're not talking about the Dimebacks. We're talking about the Mets. If we can't beat the Nationals, let me tell you, if you didn't think the season was over, it is 1,000% over if the Mets can't beat the Nationals because the Braves got the Giants. This is another chance, another golden opportunity that baseball is like, okay, here we go. You got a chance to maybe get back into it. Three against the Nationals, the Braves got the
1: Giants. Gotta win them all. Gotta sweep. That's it. The Braves right now go Giants, Dodgers, and another series or two before they go Giants again. The Braves have yet to play the, the San Francisco Giants this year. Of course, I'm sure the Giants will go cold now. Yeah, of course. They were only scoring like a couple runs a game these last two wins against the Mets. So yeah, they basically the have gone cold. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the Braves will win seven four, and we'll be like, ah, damn it. But Mets fans, if you want, I don't know, like a. Any type of tiny little bit sliver of possible hope, which is really unlikely. You just, we have 12 games against Nationals and Marlins. So you just have to win all of them. Maybe yep. 10. But I 10 think at them. the worst, you have to win 10. You have to win 10 of the next
0: 12. Uh,
1: wait, I think we have 13. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Oh, we have 14. 14 games against okay, so you the win Nationals and 14. Marlins. 12, 14. 11, 11 of 14, worst case scenario but it has, to be, it has to be double digits wins here. To even maybe have a chance, which is crazy to say. Possibly. And we don't even face Josiah Gray or Patrick Corbin, the two pitchers who are by far the best in the national staff. So just find a, find a fucking way. Score some damn runs. Yeah,
0: if we don't, um, <laughs> ooh, it's going to be bad. It's going to be fun to listen to this podcast, which takes us to the end of it, end of episode number 44 of the Mets Stub Podcast. We do want to give a quick shout-out, though, to a couple of listeners, viewers, who found our stickers in City Field, allegedly. Um, possibly. Possibly, you know. They, they might be around that stadium there. You got names for
1: me, James? We got our boy Tyler Blue. Blue boy, 1414. He found it allegedly sitting on top of the hand sanitizer. That's a sticker that allegedly has not been in the stadium for multiple months. In a very, very open location. So, shout out to our guy Tyler. Pretty cool. And we got our boy Chris. Brooklyn boy. One two two one. Called. I don't even know where this is. It's on an orange backdrop. Oh! If,
0: if I had to think, if I if I knew where this was, I
1: would guess that it's on, in the stairwell. It is in the stair. It's allegedly in the stairwell. You yeah. just allegedly jog my memory. So, yeah, shout out to boy Chris. Thank you guys for finding the stickers. Pretty yeah, cool. appreciate it. And, uh,
0: yeah, that's the end of the episode number 44 of the Mets Up Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for watching. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, at Mets Up. Make sure you're listening or watching us on YouTube, Mets Up Podcast. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Anywhere you got them, you can listen to us. Oh, yeah, and also keep an eye out for TikTok. We're going to be doing some TikTok stuff over there. I'm sure if you search up Mets Up, you'll be able to find us. So, Check us out on TikTok as well if you want some little short form video content. We're doing it all. We're trying it all trying to make this podcast grow, which it has done so great this season. Thank you guys for the amazing support. We will talk to you after these. We will talk to you after the end of this Washington National Series. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you
1: next time. Peace out. Peace out. See you guys next time.